0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary and today we're pleased to have Sophia Torini as our guest. Sophia works for an important organization in the anti-corruption world, the OECD. Welcome to the show, Sophia. We're delighted to have you. Please, would you tell us about your background?
1: Of course, uh, Mary, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this great show. I'm very happy to be here today with you. Pleasure. Well, I me, mean, um, I'm originally from Argentina, where I grew up and then became a lawyer. I have to admit that studying law was not my first option at all. When mm-hmm. I was younger, I imagined this professional like what you see on tv like people fighting all the time in front of the mm-hmm. judge mm-hmm. and i didn't imagine there were more options at the time and mm-hmm. that these give you so many opportunities but well i follow some family advices unfortunately i got my law degree mm-hmm. and my first experience in a law firm i moved to the private sector and i worked for almost four years as an in-house attorney i was mm-hmm. then promoted to the Compliance Division, um, and I was in charge of the Compliance and Anti-Corruption Program for Latin American South, and that was my first experience with the compliance anti-corruption world, even though the topic was not new for me. I was born in a society where corruption was always a big issue. I can remember being just a child, watching the news and hearing this word over and over, and today I know that this is not a country or region problem because you open almost any newspaper in almost any country and you will find a report on one or more corruption scandals. Wow. Yet, it is only relatively recently that I become mm. fully aware up- of the corrosive and devastating uh, effects of corruption. Mm. And this previous position that I mentioned before and some volunteer work that I did for NGOs, I couldn't find out what I really wanted to do with my professional career connect my legal background with a cause that means something to me. So three years ago I decided to do a Master on Corruption and Governance at Sussex University and I moved to the UK to get my degree. While I was completing this Master, I also worked for a think tank in London called IBLF that focuses on anti-corruption, business integrity and development activities around the world. That was an amazing experience and finally, I got my current position at Dewey City, where I'm working for the anti-corruption division, and I moved to Paris where I'm living right now.
0: Wow. I think a lot of our listeners were just hugely envious when you mentioned that you get to live in Paris, of course, one of the <laughs> most glamorous and famous cities in the world. Amazing. Uh, you mentioned that you have a master's degree in corruption and governance. What was it like studying in this area and what's something memorable that you were taught during the course?
1: Well, actually, for me, it was one of the best decisions I ever made, honestly. And I always mm-hmm. refer to the people that write to me or contact mm-hmm. me. in. Uh, at the time, I remember doing a lot of research and mm-hmm. it was, that uh, there were not so many masters or programs focusing specifically on anti-corruption. Of course, there were, and there still are, a lot of certifications for, for compliance officers. But in my case, I wanted to have a broader picture of what corruption is, where and why it proliferates, and what we can do to tackle it. So I wanted to understand it not only from the legal perspective, regulations and enforcement. I mean... Corruption is such a complicated topic that cannot be neatly pitched and hold in terms of particular academic disciplines. And this is why this is exactly what I could see when I was doing this program uh, in Sussex. The first part of the program was divided in different subjects. We had anti-corruption, interdisciplinary approaches, and then research methods. And in the second part of the program, we could choose among different modules that were connected or relevant to our interest. Um, Honestly, I regret not taking the natural resources and corruption module, for example, which is a topic that now I find so important. But at the end of the day, I discover how different disciplines define corruption and how therefore these disciplines suggest different ways to fight it. I remember my first class, uh, Professor Dan Hughes said that corruption doesn't have a universal, agreed definition. And I was like, how are we supposed to even fight it or do something about this if we cannot even define it? And then I got it, right? Like there is not, and there will never be one solution to fully tackle corruption Mm point. Every actor has a role to play in the fight against corruption from governments, civil society, and companies what can each of them do, what can each of us do in this sense, unpacking problems surrounding corruption and exploring solutions. Uh, What I found also very positive uh, about the program that I did at Sussex is that it was not only meant for lawyers, so we were, of course, we were quite a lot of lawyers, but there were also journalists, accountants, socialists, uh, people who studied political science. So a very diverse community. And that enriched a lot of the conversations and the discussion. We were all learning from each other's experiences. Most of us had experience in the, in the anti-corruption field before doing the master. So we could understand from different perspectives. And that is so important when you work in something like this. Uh, try to understand the problem from different perspectives um, and then the program also had a lot of extracurricular activities we did a trip to Switzerland probably now it's not possible I guess because of COVID but at the time was great um, we were pushed all the time to uh, increase and expand our network so honestly overall it was a great experience and I receive all the time messages from people who want to do it or who are interested in, in doing something connected with corruption and I really encourage them to give it a shot and, and do it because it was really a good experience for me.
0: Awesome and and how, how much time did that take Sophia? It sounded like you were working at the same time so was it evening courses? How did you fit it
1: into your schedule? It was a full-time program mm-hmm. but okay well I don't know in general I mean I only did one master there but mm-hmm. we had less three times a week mm-hmm. and then a lot of yes uh, homework on research that we had to do from for for ourselves but in my case and honestly because I had to work not only on this uh, job that I mentioned before but at the beginning I also had a lot of you know traditional student jobs so it was quite <laughs> Uh, especially when you're a foreign coming from a country, so even the prices are more expensive for you. Mm. And it was quite tricky, but at the end I think you can manage to accommodate the agenda. Uh, you have to be very organized. And for me, clearly it was not was one of the years that I couldn't have a proper social life, for example. Mm. But it paid off. So I would not complain. But yes, it takes a lot of time, but I think people can accommodate it. And there is also an option of part-time. So I remember I had a, a colleague at the time, a classmate, she was doing the part-time program, mm-hmm. so, it's in here, so and she was working full-time, so I think you can, if you want to do it, there are options, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Perfect, thank you. And you also have a particular interest in the role of youth in the fight against corruption. What have you learned about this subject?
1: Yes, um, as I mentioned before, uh, we all have a role to play if we want to have a more equal and fair world to live in. And of course, we, because I consider myself also a millennial, the millennial generation, we all have a role to play as well. Um, I said I grew up listening to my parents and my grandparents complaining about how corruption was destroying the country, how all politicians are corrupt, and how you cannot trust anyone. And at the end of the day, What happens with corruption is that it creates this sense of hopelessness and resignation that things will never change and we have to get used to it and survive the way we can. Uh, Because things are like this, companies do businesses like this, contracts are assigned like this and, you know, you have to get used to it. And corruption creates division between citizens by increasing inequality, poverty and reducing trust. So I think we have to engage in a conversation with youth to highlight that young people have the power and responsibility to change their futures and the culture for the better in their countries, and not relying only on what they have been told or are expected from others to do. So we are seeing a lot of changes, right, in different aspects, pushed and led by young people, from climate change to diversity, inclusion, gender balance, and corruption, integrity cannot be deception, and it is not. Did international organizations like the one I work for, but also others have already noticed this. For example, UNDP is running this FERBIS program. It's a project for promoting a fur business environment in ASEAN. And I am an advisor of the Youth and Entrepreneurship Platform. This platform has the objective of supporting young people to start out in their careers as employees or establishing their own business. By providing them with skills, training on ethics and integrity. And there has been a great reception of this kind of programs among young people. The same, the OECD in the last GASIF, GASIF is one of the biggest events uh, in the anti corruption field. Um, The OECD gave an important space to youth. Indeed, the opening panel of young leaders addressed critical challenges in the interplay between integrity and green growth, governance, social social justice, and debated the role of young people in shaping a fair political system, a more equitable business climate, a more transparent society. So overall, what I'm trying to say is that we as young professionals, um, the next generation or the current one, we cannot play safe and accept things are the way they are. We cannot be conformist about something so important and we must talk and demand a more ethical and transparent society. Wonderful. I, I completely agree with you. And I
0: think the generation that we have in place, perhaps more than any that we've seen before has been particularly strong about uh, activism and voting with their feet when it comes to social justice issues, their place of work having meaning for them. And so we are perhaps better positioned than historically ever before for the new generation coming in to take a stand against corruption. And we know that it is something that cannot just be changed in a few years. It will take literally generations, um, but there's no better place to continue the fight than, than the here and the now. So I'm glad to hear that there is um, a, a youth movement. There is a cause for it. And um, it's cool that you have a particular focus area in that, Sophia. So I'll watch with interest um, any sort of findings or, Um, studies that you have in that area that that focus on um, what the youth, who will will of course be the leadership of tomorrow, what they bring to the table. Um, And so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, the organization that you work for, because it's a little different to what a lot of us do. And a lot of our listeners are in-house, in private practice, or students. Um, or even regulators, but um, I think the OECD is a little different. So, will you first off share what OECD stands for and what is its mission?
1: OECD stands for Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's an international organization that works to build better policies for better lives. Its its goal is to shape policies that foster prosperity equality, opportunity, and well-being for all. It was created in 1961, and since then, together with governments, policymakers, and citizens, it works on establishing evidence-based international standards and finding solutions to a range of social, economic, and environmental challenges from improving economic performance and creating jobs to fostering strong education, fighting international tax evasion, corruption. Um, the OECD provides a unique forum and knowledge hub for data analysis, exchange of experiences as well, best practice sharing, and advice on public policies and international standard setting. For example, in the last year and a half, Uh, the OECD has also worked a lot on the COVID crisis uh, trying to help countries overcome the situation and recover back better Um, there is indeed a section on the OECD website that people can visit and they can find policy papers about different subjects and corruption and COVID crisis which is very interesting
0: wonderful thank you for that And for the last wee while, you've been working in the anti-corruption division. Will you share with us what your favourite project um, has been so far that you've worked on? And what are some of the learnings and latest findings given? You said that the OECD puts a lot of um, focus on things being evidence-based, which I love. Um, Will you share with us some of the latest findings, um, trends and patterns that could be interesting to our audience from what you've been working on?
1: I mean, the core business or the mandate of the division I work for is monitoring the implementation and enforcement of the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention, the 2009 recommendation and all related documents and instruments. Um, But having said that, if you ask me about my favorite project and also something that could be of interest to your community and your audience, I think that maybe all the work connected with business integrity could be a bit more interesting. And Absolutely. Indeed, uh, <laughs> indeed, in March uh, in March 2021, so two, three months ago, uh, we launched a, at the Gassif, this event that I mentioned before, uh, we launched a business integrity roundtable. This series of webinars were held for almost two months. Bringing together over 1,900 participants in seven virtual events. Um, the series included a two part global roundtable, three regional roundtables, and two thematic sessions. And it acted as a forum to promote good practices and catalyze trust in business. Topics covered include business integrity trends, incentive, challenges, and innovative approaches to implementation. The goal of the Business Integrity Roundtable were to understand business integrity challenges, study drivers, enforcement, investor priorities, supply chain pressure, identify good practice for public and private sector, and had the information to initiate other activities, especially from the OECD perspective, developing evidence, standard setting, trainings, and peer reviews. So I can testify that discussions were really enlightening and open. Uh, Colleagues, but also relevant stakeholders to the business community had a place to discuss about these challenges they face every day and how they are trying to reduce their risk of corruption. So I could maybe mention some trends and conclusions that we heard during these sessions that some of them will not be new for you, Mary, probably you will not find them that surprising, but then Mm -hmm. there are trends or conclusions that we heard that maybe will help us to find the path to the next steps in the fight against corruption globally. So it will not be a surprise if I say that focus on enforcement remains key. And it is probably still the reason number one uh, companies to set up their compliance programs, especially in regions like where I come from, Latin America. It's very clear how corruption and scandals have triggered criminal laws and compliance reforms, and that remains a fact. Uh, But countries are also starting to explore new incentives, so not just sanction mitigation and criminal liability, um stakeholders are also asking and demanding governments to find new and innovative ways to tackle corruption, exploring, as I said, new incentives, what they are, what works better, which countries could implement what. Uh, combination of legal and social standards create new demands for companies also covering anti-corruption. And the word ESG, well, the letters ESG, uh, have been there all the time. So for organizations like the OECD or others, sometimes it's a bit more difficult because every area has its own expertise, but there is a clear necessity to find and work on the synergies of corruption and compliance and ESG have to make things easier, better and smoother for companies and practitioners in general. There is also a great concern on SMEs and supply chain. Uh, also, I think this is not new companies are really worried about how reducing their exposure to corruption through their supply chains and third parties, how to improve compliance management in the supply chain? Um, and even though there's a lot of concerns, um, there are not so many new ideas or initiatives to address the issue. So this is something that clearly needs further work and development and organisations like the OECD and others could probably provide a lot of support on that. And then increasing use of technology, right? With the COVID, this has been boosted increasingly, like, uh, incredibly. And the use of adaptation to new technologies, data automatization, artificial intelligence, and blockchain is fundamental. What we noticed that speakers agree there is a need to also develop a sure understanding of what business integrity really means, because we use that word a lot, but it's sometimes difficult to really understand. What are we talking about? Are we talking only about corruption per se? And then if we're talking about corruption, we are a bit complicated, because as I mentioned before, there is no one definition for it. Or does it include other topics as well, like sustainability, environment, uh, human rights? So... There is a need to have a more kind of shared understanding of this. Um, companies also claim a lot for regulators that it would be useful to have a harmonized, compatible guidance from different countries and law enforcement officials. So this is something mentioned a lot. And what I think it's kind of new, or well, not new one hundred percent, but something that I think it's very important and recent is the fact that compliance is here. So there has been this big movement of compliance, compliance officers and companies implementing programs for a while. But the next step is about measuring those programs. How can we know that these compliance programs are effective? How can we measure the culture change in the companies? And how we, can we help law enforcement officials who have to analyze those programs to understand that they were actually efficient when they are investigating a company? So this is quite tricky this is something that was discussed quite a lot during the sessions. And indeed, there is a recent TI-UK report that they launched called Make It Count. And they talk about this as well. Like they explore why and how a company ought to measure the effectiveness of its approach to anti-corruption. And the report analyzes also what is understood by measuring effectiveness and highlight part- practical considerations. And I think there is a lot of work to be done on this subject um, that was raised a lot, not only for companies, but for law enforcement officials again and governments, to also enhance capacity to assess quality of compliance. Um, And finally, governments should also improve their own anti-corruption performance based on risk assessments. So there is a need to improve anti-corruption policies, performance and enforcement in general and the need to keep working and increasing the engagement between governments and companies on business integrity agendas, support SMEs, but also companies operating cross-border as well as collective actions as well, which is always an important topic. So I would say those were kind of the key highlights that I could raise, but there's a lot of work that will be coming soon from the OECD and other Stakeholders and partners, organizations. So there's still a lot to do, but there is some kind of light. Wonderful. Well, there was a lot packed
0: in there, Sophia. What a lot of great information, um, and I, I found it striking that you said, um, you know, sometimes we find out information, but we don't always have the solutions to hand immediately. And I, I think previous. OECD studies that stick in my mind have been the consistent finding that when it comes to corruption issues in um, organizations, it is very common, the vast majority of companies that are involved in corrupt activity, that senior management was either implicit or at least aware of the um, the bad behavior occurring. And so that's kind of easier to work with, right? So we know that, oh, management is typically involved in this. This means we need to target management, make sure that they're getting trained, make sure that we're not waiving training for them. But then when it comes to something like, so we know that um, supply chain integrity has some issues. What's the best way to approach that? And of course, the OECD is across multiple jurisdictions. And there are probably different nuances that come into play in terms of how how each country does business so it's there's not always a a one-size-fits-all answer and sometimes the more information we have to hand um, the more it gives us to think about to get to the solution point rather than to just immediately figure out how to deal with it so
1: that was really interesting Yes, totally. And I would say stay tuned because indeed SMEs and corruption is a big topic, and there will be a lot of work on this subject in the upcoming months. Um, well, probably years as well. Mm-hmm. But indeed, um, there is clearly a necessity from the business sector to address this, and there is a lot of cooperation between different organizations to address the topic. We at the OECD have launched talking about SMEs. We have launched a tool for SMEs to assess their own uh, anti-corruption processes. Mm-hmm. So this is a very short and it's a very friendly user for companies that are small or medium to mm-hmm. assess what they have done, to understand how they can improve it. Uh, they can find it on our OECD Asia Pacific website on anti-corruption. Um, it is very useful. and um, Things like this that are easy to understand, that, um, that are focused and meant for companies of specific size and resources are very important and then all the capacity building and awareness raising that we can do from organizations like OECD but also from the same big companies that are operating and dealing with these companies is also fundamental Um, but for sure there is much more work that needs to be done and that will be done hopefully in the coming months that uh, things will will find their way I think.
0: Wonderful. So, um, it it sounds like there's a tool that's specifically available for small and medium-sized companies to uh, take advantage of. And I think that's really critical because those, as a general rule, um, those are the companies that tend to have less compliance resourcing from a budget standpoint for external consultants to come in and benchmark your program, but also for there to be, you know, a large compliance team. And often we see one-man band Uh, compliance functions in those uh, sized companies so that's a a great um, resource that's available from the OECD and I would encourage anyone who's listening in that um, sort of feels unsupported in their role um, and maybe a little bit lean to take a look at what's available and and have a look at the OECD resources more generally as well. That's wonderful Sophia thank you for for sharing that.
1: they can find it if they type self-assessment tool for corruption risk assessment processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they find it on Google very easily. And it's also because it was part of our Asia-Pacific project. So it's apart from being in English, uh, it's also translated in some languages like uh, Vietnamese, Bahasa, Malaysia, Indonesian, etc. But it's Perfect. not meant for companies in the region, but for any SME in general.
0: Yeah. So anyone, anyone anywhere in the world um, can can make use of it. However, if you happen to be um, having a headquarters or a, a good uh, staff population in Asia, you can take advantage of some of the <laughs> local language translations. Super. Exactly. And, the other thing that I wanted to touch on um, was your your comment, which I think is absolutely correct, that the, the term business ethics is becoming one that we're throwing about quite a lot, but there is no common understanding as to exactly what falls in the parameters of that. And I think instinctively it's what we as individuals decide is right and moral. In terms of our own personal values that would be how we define business ethics. And I think that is something that's going to be um, of increasing importance in the near future for the compliance profession. Uh, I just argued in an article um, a few months back that the case for even how we treat our stakeholders, people who apply for jobs at our companies, are. Um, our staff within companies, third-party stakeholders that we deal with, simply how we treat them and with respect arguably falls under the term business ethics. Anything I, I believe my own personal um, sort of thoughts on this at the moment are uh, compliance. Functions are becoming more and more interested in what could negatively affect our reputation. So, reputational risk being part of the official compliance portfolio, and then encompassing what you spoke about earlier, Sophia, the ESG topic. Arguably, the social aspect of that comes into play in terms of how we treat each other as humans, the amount of respect that we give each other, whether we take advantage of customers. For, and so, the example that I used in the article was hotels that charge resort resort fees as part of the the package cost, whether or not you take advantage of the um, additional benefits provided in the resort fee, you still get charged it anyway. And so we would ask, how ethical is that to charge people for something that they weren't able to make use of or wouldn't have enjoyed? So I think that's a, a, a great um, question that you've put forward today, one that uh, I've certainly been thinking on a lot and, and I, I don't have an answer for it at this stage, only what my own feelings tell me, which is not really the most the best empirical evidence that we could put forward, what, what Mary's tummy says. But um I, I appreciate you putting that forward today to, to get minds thinking about um one, what is what is business ethics? What does it encompass? And how can we come to some kind of common consensus about what it means, uh not necessarily as a world, but at least in our own organizations. So that when we have expectations as a compliance function, how do we um, how do we feel comfortable that our colleagues know what our expectations are yes
1: exactly i think that we we don't have to assume that we all understand the same when talking about specific subjects and that's very important that's something that also was raised during these conversations um esg might say, or business integrity or corruption these are like broad topics and we need to have these conversations to understand we are all in the same page sometimes Mm. And or take things for granted Mm -hmm. absolutely well Sophia
0: my final question for you today and we have a lot of um students and uh young professionals who who listen into the podcast and uh, as well as veterans which I find um incredibly complimentary um what is your advice for anyone listening right now who thinks oh this sounds pretty interesting what the OECD does I could make a real difference in the world what would be your advice for anyone who's thinking that they might like to work at the OECD?
1: Okay uh, first of all I think fundamental is English this might be obvious and even though that French and English are both official languages in the OECD but also in other international organizations you can be a French native speaker, but if your English is not really good or advanced, it's gonna be very tough for you to get a position at the OECD. So I would say that's very important. Of course, knowing other languages, it's also very useful for all the regional programs that we, we do. So that's a plus, but English, 100%. So I would say that's the thing to do. Then um, understand why you want to work there and what area in particular wanting. I mean, I think a lot of people who study law at some point of our career, we all want to work like United Nations, for example, or something that's more like international and that's uh, great, but you have to be able to explain why you want to work in the organization and where exactly, because it's so diverse. And there are so many different things to do and so different, so many different departments then you have to be clear about your objectives and goals and why you're applying to that position and then highlight your skills and your knowledge and explain how that relates to the position and the general work of the division that you, you want to be in um, fundamental, like in the case of the anti-corruption division, there is this anti uh, the, the convention, the anti bribery convention that I mentioned before. So if you're applying to a position there, you must, have read the convention. Um, Also be aware that it's a very competitive process. So once you apply to the position and if you pass the first screen, then you will have to go through all the exams and the interviews and the panels. So it takes time. Uh, You have to be well prepared. And as I said before, there is a technical part of the process that you have to study and be prepared. But then you have all the more soft skills that you have to demonstrate that you you're capable to, to cope with the with the work that we do. And this is the same for any, any division. And probably this is the same advice I could give for anyone who wants to work in other similar organizations. Something very useful for me when I applied the first time was to speak with people who already work at the OECD or work in the past. So don't be shy. Reach out to people. Write to them on LinkedIn, go to events. Well, now it's a bit more complicated, but if one day we can go to events again, go and speak with people. That's what I did. I, I knew that the head of my division was speaking at a, at a conference and I went to that conference and I spoke to him. So I would say to people, do the same. Uh, add all the people you want on LinkedIn and send them messages. Most of the times, people is, people are very nice and you will get responses. And if you don't, don't feel bad, keep trying. That's something I think it's very useful because uh, when you speak with someone that can share his or her own experience, you can better understand why you want to get that job. Um, And then I would say, finally, keep trying, because as, as I said before, it's very competitive. And sometimes you might not get it the first time. But the fact that you are rejected once doesn't mean that you cannot have it. So you should keep trying. If that's what you think, uh, if that's the job that you think is best for you, if this is where you think you belong to, then keep trying, keep applying. Every time you apply to something, you learn a lot throughout the process anyway. And it's always an enriching experience. So, and this is very important, especially for someone who wants to work in anti-corruption, right? This is a spirit of not giving up. I think it's very important for people that that want to do what we are doing. Uh, Sometimes it can be a bit disappointing, right? That you work so hard Mm -hmm. and it's it's so difficult to to tackle and it takes so long that Mm -hmm. often changes are minimum and you cannot see them in the short term. Mm. So at the end, nothing worth fighting for comes easy. So whether you are doing it from the OECD or you're working from an NGO, a law enforcement agency, a company or studying about the subject, um, how to reduce corruption and build a better world, then it is always worth it anyway.
0: Absolutely. and a wonderful way that I've heard to reframe it um, has been that every rejection brings you one step closer. Um, to where you're meant to be so um agree with Sophia having grit um has been shown to be a, a key component if not the number one for success and um you're absolutely right I mean we we can reach out to people for a number of reasons and for a number of reasons they may not uh get back to us but don't let that deter you um what I have found typically is Um, almost no one will ignore a message that compliments them so if you really want to open the door think about what you can genuinely say that praises or recognizes someone that inspires you and send them that compliment what I what I I think um, is is less likely to get uh, you know almost 100% response rate is you know if you ask for a favor or help or for them to do some kind of work but if you want to start a relationship um, open the door by saying something very complimentary about the other person Um, as we know not that everybody is a narcissist but people really enjoy hearing nice things about themselves and so it can be very difficult even for the, the busiest of people to um, to ignore um, a piece of outreach from even a stranger that uh, is, is complimentary to them in some way.
1: Yes, totally. I agree. And something that I also find useful or at least in my case when I receive a message Sometimes these messages are very straightforward, like, hey, I would like to work mm. with OECD, send you my CV. And then, I mean, I, it's not like I can help a lot because all these processes are very transparent. Mm. But it's the messages from, because again, if you want to apply for this position, I didn't mention it before, but you have to go to the OECD uh, website mm-hmm. and go to offers. And then all the process go through this same uh, mechanism. So there is no way people apply individually through different channels. Mm. So it's, different, as I said before, but um, it happens to me that I receive messages uh, saying that they're interested in X project or they have read mm-hmm. and they want to know about more about this, this and that. So when I see that I can have also a more intellectual conversation with someone mm. that the topic and also would like to work at the OECD it makes everything easier also for me to answer and, and have a like an interesting conversation at the end of the day if someone also only reached out to me to, to ask something very concrete I usually respond honestly but it's true that it makes things easier when there is a clear interest from the other person and I can see why this person wants to work a uh, or why this person wants to do this master, or why this person is interested in the topic per se. Like, I think showing passion, at least for me, maybe it's because mm-hmm. I'm very Latin, and, uh, <laughs> I think <it's> very important. <laughs> That is hilarious. I love, I love the,
0: the the Latin American sort of fire for things, right? And the emotion, the investment. Oh, I just think it's gorgeous. I couldn't agree with you more, Sophia. Um, what I find particularly, I think, difficult. To respond to is when someone says um, hey I'd love to hear more about your career how you got into compliance and so on Um, because even though they're putting okay that's something I guess that's specific I often get the feeling that's not the actual what's behind the request I think that is behind when people are doing almost a shotgun approach to get in front of people that they view as potential hiring managers and it's essentially a hey please think of me if you're you know hiring someone in the future and so it's not a very good use of time for them to sit in front of someone and hear about how they got into a profession which honestly nowadays um, is typically going to be quite different right so when I came into the field it wasn't possible to even study Uh, compliance um, at school. And so a lot of us were falling into compliance, whereas nowadays it's harder to fall into it because people aren't scrabbling to fill compliance positions with there being a lack of experienced people. Now there is a treasure trove of experienced people. You're less likely to fall into it. It's more likely to be deliberate. And so I find those questions really difficult. And I have to question, is this a good use of your time or my time? to go through the motions of a conversation that is not really the focus of what the requesting person wants. So I think that is fantastic advice, Sophia. When you have a genuine need and a request that you can concretely put to someone else, it's going to be a lot easier than something that's kind of vague or is shielding. Um, the true request that's um, not necessarily showing through but that people wonder what's going on because I'm finding it very difficult to answer this question if you put a concrete question in front of someone it's going to be a lot easier for them to help so I would summarize with help me to help you
1: (laughs) yes exactly exactly that but at the end of the day don't be shy and I say this especially to students are younger and maybe they feel like they don't have much to say or Mm. uh, don't have much to share but if you can at least show that you're truly interested in the subject Mm. and explain that's enough so don't be shy i think that's very important i i totally agree with you there is
0: i think sort of i think we feel pressure to be if we're going to ask something of someone else that we have to kind of come to the table with something of value no one is expecting you as a new graduate to provide something to a chief compliance officer or a CEO and blow them away with that. And it really can be as simple as as saying, I saw you speak at a conference and um, I got the certain takeaway from it. In fact, there was a woman that I've just reached out to to speak on the podcast and uh, I actually saw her speak, I think it was over 10 years ago now, and she and I had never spoken before this point, point. and I had never forgotten. Um, she presented so well, and she came across as su- such a subject matter expert, and so I don't really have that much to offer her, but I wanted to open with you were incredibly memorable to me when I first moved overseas, um, and I first went into the anti corruption space, Um, You are one of the first subject matter experts that I saw, and I've always remembered you for that. And so you don't need to give someone anything that makes them go, wow, I'm going to do my job differently. You've just altered my universe in that way. But something very small and very human can be incredibly impactful. Totally agree. I couldn't agree more
1: with you, (laughs)
0: Thank you, Sophia. Well, Sophia, I I find you an absolute um, delight to work with you and I have worked informally on a couple of occasions now and um, I thank you for the contribution that you make to the anti-corruption space. Um, Wonderful to see your success and I wish you all the success for the future and thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Mary, And I really hope this is not the last time we will work or do something together. It's been a pleasure. And I hope people will enjoy also the the podcast as much as I did. I'm 100% sure that they will and you can count on me for
0: anything you need in the future. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate you listening and take care.